Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 25 for our study today. Genesis 25. If you don't have your Bible with you, I encourage you to grab the Bible in the rack in front of you. Genesis 25. As Moses continues a journey through the first things. In Genesis 25 and verse 1, here is what we read. And Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Yokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Shiva and Didan. The sons of Didan were Ashurim, Latushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah. Ephir, Chanuk, Avidah, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zachar, the Hittite, east of Mamre. In the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lachoi Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth, Navaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Chidar, Adveel, Mibsham, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Yutur, Nafish, and Kedama. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. And he settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Hadan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. 
When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called the Edom. Jacob said, well, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, well, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, well, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. May the Lord add his blessing at the hearing and the reading of his word this morning. Now, uh, last week we talked about getting in the game, and you received a little slip in your materials that you came in with. Uh, get in the game, you had an opportunity to give a specialty coffee to your neighbor or coworker, bake some cookies or a pie for your neighbor. That's how you show the love of Christ. Hopefully you did that. If you did, you check one of the boxes and stick it on the little counter there on the Connect Center. We already are receiving some of those. We're going to have a tally board up next week. But there's also new ones of these on the Connect Center, so you can pick up a new one if you already have done one, or if you've lost yours, go ahead and pick up another one and get in the game, and hopefully we'll get some more, have a pile of these in terms of how you're going to touch your neighbor. Now, by the way, in terms of what uh, our missionary person was doing, teaching in elementary schools, I can't mention her name at this time, but I got to tell you, uh, having served overseas, I'm very, very thankful for people who have the heart and the calling to go over and help missionaries or pastors who are serving overseas because our kids reap the benefit while we were serving in Budapest with uh, these kinds of missionaries like the one you just uh, heard from just a few moments ago. And uh, man, what a blessing. What a blessing. Our kids are third, you know, country kids uh, or third culture kids, we should say. They have this culture, then they're now being raised in another culture when we were over in Budapest, and now they kind of find, like, where, where do I go? Where do I fit in? And having teachers and uh, administrators who are willing to teach our kids and love on them and care for them, man, what an important ministry. So anyway, if you're able to support her and encourage her, please do so. We're very, very thankful. So years ago, years ago, my grandparents, my dad's mom and dad, they're known to me as Grammy and Gramps, so you'll forgive me if I use those names. Uh, my grandfather got hired uh, to work at a candy factory in St. Joe, Missouri, way back in the Great Depression. As a matter of fact, what happened during the Great Depression, uh, a bunch of guys are on the very back lot of the place, and and sure enough, somebody who's going to hire some people, you know, is out there hiring people, and he's going, you, 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 and the tall guy back there, I want that guy, and that happened to be my grandfather, so he got a job during the Depression washing windows at this candy factory. Well, it just so happened my grandmother uh, also was working at this candy factory, and they met, and they fell in love. She was, I think, in the office there, and they, they fell in love, and, uh, you know, they were going to church. Uh, they end up getting married. Everything's looking great. The kids start coming. 
and uh, everything just seems wonderful. My grandfather is going up the ladder in terms of his career. I know, from a window washer. But by the way, the end of the story is he worked his way all the way up to vice president of the company. So it was quite a career move. But uh, everything's going well. He's going up the ladder in leadership of the church. And apparently he went to a meeting one night as a young man, newly married, newer believer, you know, going to church, goes to church, goes to this meeting. And sure enough, uh, there's something that takes place. We're not sure exactly what happened, but he came home from this business meeting at the church. And he said to my grandmother, there are more honest people out in the world than there are at that church. I'm never going back. And so he was done and he quit going. Initially, my grandmother started to pray. You can imagine how she started to pray. And from what she knew of scripture is that, well, it seems like he's a backslider. And the scripture says that the, the Lord will deal with those who are his, right? But as time went by, God never did anything. He just, he just kept going up the ladder. The Lord chastises those who are his, and no chastisement ever came. And she's praying that God, you know, be gentle with him and you finally deal with him, and nothing's happening for years. Finally, she realized maybe she has the wrong prayer. And she starts praying that he would come to Christ, that he would actually know his Savior. Tough situation. Maybe you find yourself in a similar situation with a situation where you thought someone was in Christ, and it turns out, well, maybe they weren't. But the bottom line for my grandmother is that through all that she went through, she developed what I would call an amazing, godly legacy. And that's what we want to talk to you about today through this passage. As we'll see today, we can leave a godly legacy, no matter what the circumstance is by being prepared to die, by striving to raise an uncontentious family, by living a life of prayer, by not playing favorites, by not taking advantage of other people. That's what we're going to see today. We've gone back to the beginning in our series as we study the book of Genesis, today leaving a godly legacy in chapter 25. Chapter 25 of Genesis marks the beginning of the account of the life of Jacob. It is marked off by a double toledoth. And a toledoth, that's a Hebrew word, that is translated, these are the generations of. Found in verse 12 of 25 and also 19. So there's two Toledos, these are the generations, these are the generations. And Jacob's account, Jacob's account is then framed by a closing double Toledoth in chapter 36, verse 1 and 37, verse 2. So understand, there's the framework in terms of these two, these are the generation statements, and all that's in between there is the account of Jacob. Of course, after 37.2, what's next is going to be the account of Joseph. Stay tuned for that. That's going to be amazing. But now, for the next several weeks, we're going to look at the life of Jacob. So the whole account of Jacob spans chapter 25 through the beginning of 37. Last week, we found a wife for, for Isaac, and now we find his wife, Rebecca, is not just going to have a baby, but she's about to give birth to twins, with the advent of twins, we are faced with a new dilemma. Remember, we've been following the seed line from the very beginning. A child was promised to the woman who had come from the woman to destroy evil once and for all. When God was talking to Adam and Eve and dealing with the serpent, a child will come 
and you will destroy. This child that comes will destroy evil once and for all. We've been waiting. Who is the child? Who is it? What line is it going to come through? It's going to come through Adam. We saw and we followed the line through Seth. We followed all the way to Abram, and now it's gone to Isaac. But now the new dilemma, there's two kids that are going to be born, Jacob and Esau. Who's the promised child? Who's the redeemer? Who's going to make all the difference? So this morning, we'll see the ongoing unfolding of the seed line that's promised by way of this promised redeemer. Of course, man's ways are just not God's ways. And oftentimes we think we know how things should go, but God comes along and has a totally different and better plan. And in the end, his plan is always the best plan. So this morning, we'll see five truths that will help all of us leave a godly legacy. But before we study, let's ask God's help. Would you please pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and the power that's in it because it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your truth and to be moved by it, that we too might be spurred on to leave a godly legacy for your purposes. So, Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Help us not to miss anything that you might have for us today. We pray all this in your son's wonderful name. Amen. If you have your sermon notes outlined, here's the first truth. We can leave a godly legacy by being prepared to die. Now, that sounds like a morbid topic to talk about. Oh, are you prepared to die? Well, let me tell you this. I think you'll probably be a lot more prepared to die if you're prepared to live, right? So first of all, we can leave a godly legacy by being prepared to die, making provisions in the event of our death. And this is what we see. We listed all these children that came by this second wife, Keturah. But in verse 5, notice what it says. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. He had made provisions prior to leaving the planet, if you will. He made provisions by giving all of his assets to Isaac. Sarah had died way back in Genesis 23. And now the only heir of Abraham's marriage to Sarah is Isaac. So Isaac is basically named as the executor of the estate. I ask you, what plans do you have in the event of your untimely demise? Is everything ready in the event of your death? Do you have a will? Again, as a former insurance agent, as a pastor, I've seen both ends of this stick where some people have everything prepared and it's wonderful, everything goes really well and it's already difficult and then things go pretty well in a difficult situation with the loss of a loved one. But then there's some who haven't made any plans at all, and I'm just telling you, it's always heartache. It's difficult. So are you ready? Are you making provisions in the event of your death? Secondly here, by being prepared to die, assigning assets and giving directions to heirs. That's exactly what Abraham did in verse 6. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, watch this, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. In other words, Abraham knew that his legacy was really tied to Isaac and not these other kids. So he didn't want these other children interfering with that legacy. And he said, you know, you guys need to move away and leave Isaac alone. Again, when people die, I've seen it. Maybe you've seen it too. People get a little goofy. It's as if the vultures start circling, arguments over property and assets can leave great family scars and hurt. 
But notice that Abraham makes his arrangements while he was still living. That's what it says. And while he was still living, he sent them away. Man, this is huge. This is important. It was just uh, about 15 years ago or so that my mom and dad sold the house that I had grown up in down in Washington, Illinois, uh, just near Peoria. And um, all of us kids were thinking there were some things in that house as they were moving, they were going to be downsizing, that we might have liked and would have liked to have had, you know? There were some kind of some neat things that we would have liked. But you know what? They actually did us a huge favor. They just got rid of most of it. And so nobody could say, well, I'm dibs, I want that thing. And there was no, there was no discussion because it was already taken care of. It was beautiful. Thank you, Mom and Dad. You guys are awesome. Making provisions in the event of our death, assigning assets and giving directions to heirs. Thirdly, living a life with no regrets. This is how you can be prepared to die, as I just mentioned a few moments ago. Are you prepared to live? Living a life with no regrets. Notice what it says in 7 and 8. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last, his last rather, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. Now you kind of wonder, Brad, where'd you get this idea that he's lived a life of no regrets? Notice the phrase, he died in a good old age. The word good here is the Hebrew word tov, which could easily be translated as beautiful. He died in a beautiful old age. And by the way, if you said somebody, you know, somebody died in a good old age, there is a possibility you died in a bad old age, and it wasn't so good. But he died in a good old age. No regrets. Beautiful. Timothy, I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.7. Listen to how Paul saw his ministry as it was coming to an end. He writes, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Oh, man. What a great legacy. What a great statement, living a life of no regrets. Here's the Apostle Paul who gave his life to administering and preaching the gospel. And he says, you know, I've done all I can do. And in fact, in another verse, he says, I've been poured out like a drink offering. Of course, Paul says in Acts 20, 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, he says, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. His, his heart, his only hope was that he would fulfill the ministry that God had for him. What's your heart in terms of living a life with no regrets? Are you doing, are you becoming, are you being the person that God would want you to be in that process? But fourthly here, living in light of eternity. And apparently that's how Abraham lived his life, living a life with no regrets and living a, in light of, of eternity where it says at the very end of verse eight, where he was gathered to his people. Uh, by the way, all of us are gonna be gathered. <laughs> some of us to our people, some not. The question here is, are you in Christ? Have you given your life to him? There's two things that no one can avoid. Taxes and death, sorry, <laughs> right? And of course, we all enjoy the tax man, but hey, the ta the, here comes death. It's coming. I hate to break it to you. It is coming. 
The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.27, just as is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, here it comes. Are you living in light of eternity? A lot of times it's very easy for us to be all caught up in the here and the now, and the stuff associated with the here and the now, with no view, no mind, no heart towards the there and the then, with all that he has for us, all that awaits us, including being gathered to your people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from, from God. Are, are you prepared to live for eternity with God's commendation where he might say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? But not only that, and even more specific, more practical, preparing for your funeral. We can leave a godly legacy by being prepared to die by preparing for our funerals. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. You see, years before Abraham had prepared for this moment, he actually had bought his plot ahead of time. And his wife is already buried there. And now he left instructions for him to be buried with her. Beloved, we can leave a godly legacy by being prepared to die, even preparing for our funeral. Now, I don't know if you've noticed that there was this queen over in England who died recently. Did you hear about that? Yeah. And the arrangements have been in place, not just a, like last week or three weeks ago. We're, we're talking for years they've been in place. Now, obviously, none of us are going to have as opulent a funeral as she's going to have, but what arrangements do you have in place? What songs do you want sung? What do you want to be said? Who do you want to be saying it? About your devotion, your commitment to following Christ. I hope your funeral is one where the gospel's proclaimed. And lastly here on this thought, in terms of being prepared to die, leaving a godly legacy. Notice what it says in verse 11. And after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lachoi Roy. The godly legacy continues now in the line of the Messiah that comes now to Isaac. We're taught in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through Moses, as God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. So how, how should we love him? With all you've got all that you are. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, when you rise. So how often should you be talking about this stuff? All the time. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. If you come to visit me in my house and you open the front door, the first thing you're going to see is a B-I-B-L-E, a big one, right at the front door. Because I want anybody in my house to know that this is who and what we're about. We're about him. What signs do you have on your doorposts? What legacy are you leaving in the midst of living your life? Are you really prepared to die? 
But secondly here this morning, we can leave a godly legacy by striving to raise an uncontentious family. And now we see all the descendants of Ishmael, but don't miss this. In verse 18, in verse 18, from 12 to 18, with the listing of, you know, these are the generations in verse 12 of Ishmael's descendants, notice what it says at the very end of 18. It says, he, that is Ishmael and his family, he settled over against all his kinsmen. There's conflict. Literally, if you were to translate this literally by way of the Hebrew, instead of he settled over against all of his kinsmen, you'd say his face fell toward all his kinsmen. His face, the word here is panim, his nose went down. He was cast down toward his kinsmen. That's conflict. And of course, to this day, we see the remnants of this conflict, this unfortunate, enduring family feud that remains to this day with the Arabic descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac through Jacob, i.e. Israel. And they're still blowing each other's houses up and still throwing rocks at each other to this day. What could have been done to somehow mitigate the contentiousness here. What can we do to help our children and our children's children to get along and to love each other? You know, if they're fighting at three and five years old, what's it gonna look like when they're 20 and, and 25 years old? You know, what, what are we gonna do in terms of sorting those things out and loving our kids and helping them to see a different way of loving each other and living for each other? You know, we all know the stories of the, you know, the stories, family stories. Maybe you have it in your family, the McCoys and the Hatfields, right? Everybody's got their guns ready to go. Beloved, we need to do all we can to help our children to get along with each other. And that's how we train them. That's how we raise them up as best we can. But thirdly here, we can leave a godly legacy by living a life of prayer. First of all, praying for all that you are longing for, because this is what happens here in this passage. In verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padamaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Oh, no. And the Lord granted his prayer. So before the prayer is answered, there's a time of prayer. Crying out to God for what was on his heart. Quite frankly, think about it. I mean, before with Abraham, he was 100 years old. And you can imagine Isaac going, man, let's not wait that long, huh, God? You know, maybe could be a little sooner, maybe, than 100 years old before I showed up. He knew the heritage. He knew the background. But we can cry out to God with all that we're longing for. Praying, seeking him, petitioning him. Again, in life, sometimes things just don't go the way that we think they should. This is when we need to find ourselves all the more in prayer. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, Paul writes, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, does that mean you're going to get everything you pray for? That's not what the verse says. But what will he grant you? He'll grant you peace yeah. as we trust him to sort out all that's going on in your world. 
is you cry out to him and you go, God, I can't figure this out. You're gonna have to figure it out. It's yours. Please do something. Do something awesome. And the question is, will we wait on him? John writes in 1 John 5, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, mind you, there's some things that we ask that aren't according to his will. I want the Lamborghini. Probably not in his will, sorry. Bummer for you. But those things that are in his will, he's all about bringing about on your behalf for his glory. And if you know that he hears us, and if we know that he hears us, in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. This is the confidence we have. The question is, will we trust him with what we ask him for? No matter what the circumstance is, will you be a praying person? You leave a godly legacy to the degree that you live a life of prayer. Now think about this just for Jesus as an example, who constantly was going off to pray. When his disciples are talking to him one day, and they're trying to understand this Jesus, think about the things they ask him about. They don't say, hey, you know, how do you heal that person? You know, how do you spit in the mud and make the mud and, you know, put it in the guy's eye? He didn't, none of the disciples ask him that. But what's the one thing they do ask him? You know that thing you keep doing where you keep going and praying? Would you teach us to pray? That's what he asked. That's a legacy. Because he was constantly going off to pray. It's amazing. If you read all the accounts about Jesus going off to pray, before big ministry things, he goes off to pray. After big ministry things, he's, he's praying. Sometimes in the midst of the, the big event, he's praying, crying out to the Father. When he chooses the disciples, he's up. The scripture says he's up, Jesus is up all night praying. And you kind of wonder, I mean, you're God's son, you're God incarnate. What are you praying for? I mean, what does he have to pray for? He's God. And yet, that's an example for us. You can imagine, he's trying to, you know, he's gonna choose the 12 disciples the next day. So he's like, oh, you know, Judas in, Judas out, Judas in. You can imagine what he might be asking, but I don't know, I wasn't there. But he demonstrates the example for us on how we ought to pray. Constantly seeking his face. Secondly, asking God for wisdom and insight. Because this is what we see now with Rebecca. In verse 22, it says, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. See, that's a great thing to do. She's seeking God out. Hey, I, I don't know what's going on here. And the Lord says to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Throughout scripture, we have this ongoing motif that if you're missing some wisdom, would you go ask for it? James 1, 5 and 6, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives how? How does he give? Generously to all without reproach. and It'll be given him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Scripture says, ask and you shall receive. As uh, my father would paraphrase, don't ask, don't get squat. Ask and you shall receive. Seek him out. But then after we ask, thirdly here on this issue of a life of prayer, waiting on God's answer. 
Will you wait for him? Look at verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, just as what was said. The first came out red and all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau, which literally means hairy. Hey, hairy kid, hairy guy. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, and so his name was called Yaakov, Yaakov, Jacob, we could say it. Jacob, of course, literally means heel catcher, otherwise known as supplanter. And we're going to find out that's exactly who he's going to be. But notice the verse at the very end of 26, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now, I'd like to point out to you that 20 more years passed before the kids finally came from the original prayer. And you go, oh, you mean it might take a while? Right. Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 41, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined it to me and heard my cry. Will you wait on him? Will you trust him? Again, we're living in a culture that, you know, I want my burger and I want my fries with it right now, right? As opposed to saying, okay, God, you know what I'm longing for. I'm gonna trust you. Help me to wait. Fourthly here, we can leave a godly legacy by not playing favorites. Mm. You don't do that with your kids, do you? Well, maybe you were the favorite in your household. Mm. Maybe you knew who was the favorite. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter and a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay, here we go. This is gonna set the stage for a big mess. Stay tuned for that. Beloved, we need to love our children with equity. We need to love all of our children equally. James 2.1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We know what can go bad when there's favoritism in a household, within a family, like in Genesis 37.4 with Joseph and his brothers. Listen to this. It says, but when his brothers, that is when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Anybody know any family situations like that? Sure, you can all think of that. Beloved, showing partiality is an incredibly destructive force, especially within a family. If you can do whatever you can to mitigate that, do so. So everybody can see everybody's getting a fair shake. But then lastly here, we can leave a godly legacy by not taking advantage of other people. And this is exactly what happens with Jacob and Esau, where Jacob decides to take advantage of his brother instead of being kind and generous. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name is called Edom, which is red And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Don't forget the now part. (laughs) I I want your birthright now, pal. You want some dinner? Give it to me. 
Esau said, well, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? He finally says, well, I, you know, I'm really hungry and I don't really care about that right this moment. So Jacob said, swear to me. Now! Don't forget the now part. Now! <laughs> He's really pushing this. Now, pal. Now. I want it now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And we're going to find that this little seed planted in this moment, as Jacob takes advantage of his brother, is going to grow up into this big, nasty plant of conflict and destruction that never had to be there. You see, Jacob really was a heel grabber, a supplanter. Paul writes in Philippians 3, it won't be on the screen, but listen close. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, instead of being demanding for what you think is yours and what you want to take from other people, maybe we should give everything over to him. I count it all lost, Paul says. I just, I give it all up. It's yours. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It's not about the stuff. It's not about holding on to things in this world. It's about you finding Christ and gaining him. That you might be found in him, the passage says, not having a righteousness of your own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. You guys, we are holding on to the wrong things in this life. But let me just tell you, you will not be creating a godly legacy if you're constantly trying to take advantage of other people, trying to nickel and dime them in this world. It's going to go bad on you. When in reality, you should have been storing your treasure somewhere else with him. Where the moth and the rust does not destroy that which is eternal and everlasting. Don't grab the temporal, hold on to the eternal. So my grandmother, man, she starts praying. She's praying just like the text. 10 years goes by, no change. And all the while now, you know, he's checked out, he's a workaholic, my grandfather, Gramps, he's, he's going up the ladder. Like I said, he worked his way all the way up to vice president of the company. She's raising two boys and a girl, one of them is my dad. Doing the best she can. 10 years goes by, 20 years goes by, 25 years goes by, no change, nothing. Still praying, oh God, bring him to yourself. Change his heart. Have your way with my husband. But she remained faithful all those years. 30 years goes by. One day, my grandfather comes home from a business trip on a Saturday, and he says to my grandmother, what time is church tomorrow? I got saved this week. Unbelievable. He goes over to the liquor cabinet and pours the liquor down the drain. I knew my grandfather as a believer. I'm very thankful for that. Why? Because in the process, I was left a godly Legacy, wasn't I? 
But that's not, you know, I'm not the point of the story. I mean, God's the point of the story because I just want you to hear this. You know, my dad, who was a, attended church his whole life, when dad left Grace Presbyterian Church down in Peoria, Illinois, he was awarded elder emeritus at a church of 2,000 plus when he left. That's how, that's how God used that godly legacy in my dad. And then when I planted a church, uh, 20 years ago, my mom and dad came along and helped us do it again, and I never thought in a million years this would be the possible, but my dad ends up being an elder on the church that I'm planting, which is crazy. My dad's brother, Uncle Dick, Richard P. Belcher, dare I say Dr. Richard P. Belcher, who ended up being a professor of Bible at Columbia University in South Carolina. Unbelievable. His son, Richard P. Belcher Jr., Cousin Dicky, <laughs> that's what we called him growing up. He's uh, now a professor of Old Testament theology at Reformed Theological Seminary to this day. My brother's a pastor. I'm a pastor. My uh, other brother's been a lifelong elder at a church up in northern Wisconsin near Eagle River. Uh, um, unbelievable. Christian heritage, Christian legacy. My dad's sister married a pastor. Again, it just goes on. Because of one faithful woman, one godly faithful woman, who all those years was ready and prepared to die. Because she was prepared to live. She wrote a poem. She passed away in 2002. How old was she, Mom and Dad? 92. And um, she wrote this in 1992, 10 years before she died. Just listen to these words. One day our blessed Lord Jesus will come and take me home, and my soul and spirit will go with him. But my body must remain alone until that glorious day when he descends to say, my children come forth from the tomb. Then the body of each one since Adam, who has believed on Jesus' name, will come forth from the tomb and be united with his soul and spirit again. And we all shall be immortal as he and in him our inheritance claim. Please weep not for me when he calls me, though your hearts may be sad that I'm gone. Everything comes in God's perfect time and waiting will not be long. God numbered the years of this veil of tears. And after midnight comes the glorious dawn. Man's mind can never comprehend the glories of that beautiful place when with our loved ones and friends and saints of old, we look into Jesus' face and see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and forever rejoice in his grace. You guys, that's someone who was ready to be gone because she knew how to live. And she demonstrated a legacy of trusting God throughout her whole life to such a degree that it's impacted not only my family, but now families of families of families, which is incredible. We can leave a godly legacy by being prepared to die, 
by striving to raise an uncontentious family, by living a life of prayer, by not playing favorites, and by not taking advantage of other people. Would you please stand with me as we close our service? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we need to understand and recognize that none of us are living in a vacuum. All of us uh, have, are in the process of living, leaving an imprint in this world. We're leaving some sort of legacy. The question is, what is it? For some, it'll be found in their family. For others, it'll be found in their ministry. But Lord, may we be found faithful, trusting you with the outcome, making sure that we're living a life of prayer, living in such a way that we're, we are prepared to be with you for eternity living in such a way that we're not taking advantage of other people, living in such a way that we're full of grace and patience, kindness, all the fruit of the Spirit that should be flying out of us out of us, because we're following you. Lord, it's possible there's someone here this morning who doesn't know you and there's no legacy other than something that, that would afford destruction. And Lord, it's my prayer that even now they turn to you. They turn in faith and say yes to you. I recognize that I'm a sinner and I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. Lord, it's my prayer that they invite you into their heart and life even right now. And Lord, you promise to enter in, to never leave us or forsake us, and to help us through everything in life. So Lord, thank you for these words from your word. We ask that they would impact our hearts deeply, that we might not just hear these things, but we'd actually fall in love with them to such a degree that we'd be falling all over ourselves to do them. So move in our congregation, or move in our hearts, move in my heart, so that we might leave a godly legacy for your glory. Lord, we know we can't do this in our own strength. We need the power of your spirit in us, working through us for your purposes to accomplish those ends. So Lord, may we ask, may we seek your face. May we wait on you for your good pleasure with what you're bringing about. Not only in our own hearts and lives, the lives of our family, but in the the life of this church. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for attending to us today as you've spoken to our hearts through your word. And now bless us as we go from this place. May we be a light in the dark world. May we actually, in reality, show the love of Christ to those around us in real, tangible, awesome ways that others might see you and want more of you. So Lord, thank you. I want to give you all the praise today. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much for coming. Have a fantastic week.